listening to Sequelize It, a movie rewatch podcast where we chronicle the triumphs and dissect the disasters of Hollywood, one movie franchise at a time. I've done it now. I've gone and made a big mistake. (laughs) It's time to start the Lord of the Rings franchise, starting with the Fellowship of the Ring. Quietly regretting my life decisions, my name is KC, and joining me is... I'm your Fox friend Backlash, and one does not simply walk into a discussion about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I'm No Chris Alive, sequelize it to Mastodon of the Monotone, and Gary Bilbo face meme. <laughs> and we're going to try to come to grips with Peter Jackson's magnificent series of films that people thought could never be brought to life in live action, but somehow were. And also the Hobbit movies. But first, here are some ways you can help the podcast grow. One, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app of choice. Two, be sure to subscribe so you can be the first to hear new episodes. Three, follow us on Twitter at SequelizeIt. Four, send us an email and let us know what movie franchises you'd like to see us take on at SequelizeIt at gmail.com. And five, if you like what we're doing, just tell a friend to give us a listen and keep on circulating the podcast. So, Lord of the Rings, guys. How much do you hate me for scheduling us to watch six three to four hour movies for the next month and a half? I'm going to say, I don't think we're experienced enough for this at doing (laughs) this show. Well, I mean, the, the funny thing is, like, I look at Lord of the Rings, and as popular and as successful as these movies were with wide audiences, you still kind of look at it years down the road as something for connoisseurs or something or, or something for people who are very much into either this genre or or the mythology itself, which Tolkien himself. Yeah, like I, 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 everyone I hear talk about these movies have nothing but praise for them, and I can see that. What, like, I can see why these movies are so loved, but I've just never been able to get into them. Like when they were coming out, I, I never felt compelled to go watch them. I tried reading the books once; I fell out very quickly because I could instantly tell it wasn't for me, and I was just not going to have a good time. So I, I feel like we are very under-equipped for this. Yeah, similar experience. I was actually going to sort of have a, a discussion lead because, like, some some inside baseball, like, uh, we normally do act breaks for these movies, or or we try to go it through the plot bit by bit, but, like, I mean, these are three-hour fucking movies. There's, <laughs> there's no way we could do that. So in addition to, like, looking at the characters, we could also look at this from, like, certain standpoints. For instance, like, overall, like, what are your two... Uh, kind of like what's your your sort of relation likes and dislike with the fantasy genre over overall oh that's a good question um i i don't find myself gravitating towards fantasy very often um uh, i mean it would be a shock to no one that i'm a big science fiction fan i mean the first movies we did on this podcast are were star wars and I'm much more of a Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, stuff happening in space kind of person right. than um, a high fantasy kind of person. And my wife is the exact opposite because she loves these movies. 
and well, I mean, she knows she knows that there's issues with them, but she's fantasy is way more her bag, and science fiction is way more my bag. So, in a similar way to Backlash, when these movies came out, I didn't feel compelled to go watch them, and me and my friends who were, you know. We were all racking up credit card debt, like buying as many movies as we could, you know, to, you know, one, to have movies, and two, because if we were like $100 short on the day at Suncoast, we could just like buy $100 worth of movies and then it would look good for us that we made gold for the day. Don't do that, kids. It's a bad way to, to get into lots of debt. But yeah, it's. I don't know. I just never. I'm coming at this from a standpoint of I can I can appreciate fantasy. There's cer- certain fantasy movies that I can get into, but like I am it's it's definitely not my bag. I'm going to have to agree along the same lines. Uh probably I I hate to say that my favorite fantasy movie is uh, the Dungeons and Dragons movie, and it is not because it is uh, cinematic wonder. It is because it is batshit insane, and I love it for that. So I think the best way we're going to be able to approach this is this is a movie franchise podcast. As such, we are fans of movies. That is how we're going to have to approach this. Not not as fans uh, of fantasy, not as fans of Tolkien, but as fans of movies. that That's the best way we're going to be able to approach this. So right. if you came here looking for some big, epic uh, breakdown of uh, Tolkien's masterpiece, you're not going to find it. Nope. And there's probably podcasts that you're already familiar with who, who can do that. Uh, for my own part, I, again... Hate to hate for this to to be such a common thing, and for for there to be like no sort of foil. But uh, my sort of experiences with fantasy were limited. Never into isekai anime. Um, the close, I mean, I I did like Escaflonia and Slayers, but it's but that that was when I was a kid. I could say that I was into the the Final Fantasy to not make a pun series, but I mean, a lot of those were very much intertwined with with a sense of technology be it the sort of industrialization steampunk of, of like of six or the, or the sort of the diesel punk, uh, like a uh, kind of environmental energy stuff of seven, like things like that. There was always something a bit more modern about them. And I would say that like, I wouldn't really go have gone near stuff. That's, that's of a fantasy genre until I played the Witcher. And subsequently I got heavily into the soul series and this is within the last three years. So I was trying to approach this movie from the standpoint of like what got me into those into those games. And yeah, it's kind of a far cry already this movie, although there's like a lot of destruction and a lot of sort of like mythologizing preamble in this. Like the, the first scene is more or less celebratory. And so so it's certainly it. There are shades of dark fantasy, but it certainly doesn't quite describe that. But, but I mean, for for my part, I enjoyed this movie, and I was more engaged with it than I than I thought I'd be having seen the extended version. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, my my favorite fantasy anything is probably Dragon Age Inquisition, which I played from beginning to end, which is like the first bit of fantasy that I really, really, really got into when, like, I was like, yeah, I definitely want to finish this. 
Mm-hmm. And I I just bought the The Witcher. I'm trying to finish Red Dead Redemption before I jump into that. Uh, but it, it maybe as I'm getting older, I'm like I can see I can appreciate those things more. Because before you know I'd I'd be for for a kid who liked Power Rangers a whole lot. I was more like dragons and knights is kind of stupid, you know. But it's it's. You know, I feel like I can appreciate it more. Uh, I think we're gonna have the only the only way through this is to just to go through this, and we are gonna try our best to be as comprehensive as we can. But as Backlash said, we're we're looking at this from a movie standpoint, not from a we are way into you know J.R.R. Tolkien or any of that kind of stuff. And with that bit of uh, preamble and <laughs> making excuses out of the way, <laughs> uh, so uh, this is the part where normally I would do trivia, but I think today we're going to do trivia abridged. Because, <laughs> oof, the the... Just, just again, a little bit of an inside look. The Lord of the Rings Wikipedia page, you can get lost for hours inside that Wikipedia page just on the different aspects of the production and of the rights ownership and all that stuff. And there's, of course, been tons of books and documentaries and all that good stuff, but I tried to boil it down as much as I could to how these movies came to be. <sighs> okay, so here we go. Don't stop, don't stop, we're in luck now. Don't stop, there's so much to be found. We can't find paradise. All we have to do is go, go, free your soul. Dragon Soul! J.R.R. Tolkien. Born 1982 in South Africa. Raised Catholic. Dad died when he was young. Mom died when he was young. Fought in World War I. Might have been a bit of a racist. Started writing The Hobbit in the early 1930s. Finished it in 1932. In 1938, while working on the follow-up, The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien gets approached by a legendary creator and noted maybe anti-Semite Walt Disney. Says he wants to put a section on The Hobbit in Fantasia. Doesn't happen. Disney still wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie in the 1950s, but it was deemed too dense and too scary to be a proper Disney movie. Lots of convoluted rights shit happens throughout the 1960s. Did you know that the Beatles wanted to do a Lord of the Rings movie? Paul McCartney wanted to be Frodo and Ringo wanted to be Sam. Stanley Kubrick was shortlisted to direct. Oh my god. Kubrick said that Lord of the Rings was too dense and was borderline unfilmable. The 1960s are fucking weird. Tolkien dies in 1972. The same year, Rankin and Bass, i.e. the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer folks, go to Tolkien's estate, say they want to make a Hobbit movie because Lord of the Rings is too fucking dense. I'm sensing a pattern. Tolkien's estate tells Rankin and Bass to get bent. Rankin and Bass say, fuck you, we'll make it anyway because the books are public domain now. Yada yada yada, the special gets made, but can only air in Canada and debuts in 1977. 
The movie was shit, but somehow was still nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Star Wars won that year because no matter what we review, we can't escape George Lucas. <sighs> Let's go back to 1976. Ralph Bashke and MGM purchased the rights to Lord of the Rings from United Artists who had purchased them from Sal Zance, who had been given them by Tolkien. Writer Chris Conkling did six fucking complete script rewrites. They released it, giving people no indication that there'd be a second movie, even though it ends on a cliffhanger, mostly because MGM didn't want to make a second fucking movie of this shit. John Borman tried to make the movie. That shit didn't work. Rankin and Bass somehow made a Return of the King movie, even though they hadn't made any of the other movies. Oh, look, it's George Lucas and Steven Spielberg again. Lucas tries to acquire the rights in the 1980s slash 1990s. His inability to get them lead to the Ewoks TV show and the movie Willow, which would later be followed up on in a series of no novels called Shadow Moon, in which Willow becomes Thorn Drumheller, because literally everything I review on this podcast is going to have a link to that awful fucking book series. Bet you didn't think that running joke was going to come back. <sighs> Let's fast forward. It's 1995. Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh need to do a movie to keep their special effects company running. They try to come up with their own fantasy story, but keep coming up with Willow-esque stories until Peter Jackson was like, fuck it, let's just pitch Lord of the Rings to Miramax. Noted shitbag Harvey Weinstein had helped Saul Zantz rescue the movie The English Patient, so Zantz owes Weinstein a favor, basically. Jackson pitches the films as a trilogy, one movie based on The Hobbit and two based on The Lord of the Rings, shoot the movies back to back over a six month period because Peter Jackson is fucking insane. But you don't know how insane he is yet. Jackson gets to make a King Kong movie for Universal. Weinstein is pissed. Then the King Kong movie gets cancelled. Now Jackson can focus on rings. <sighs> Miramax wants two movies. Peter wants three movies. They go back to two movies. Lots of treatments were written. Weinstein says Ashley Judd can't be considered for the movie because he had sexually harassed her. Fuck Harvey Weinstein. He also suggested Morgan Freeman for Gandalf because why not have shitty ideas if you're a shitty person? Let's skip forward again. A second script is written. It features a lot more cursing and Arwen and Aragorn fucking in the glittering pools. Miramax is owned by Disney. Miramax is like, can you help us fund this stupidly expensive project? Michael Eisner is too busy fucking up Disney's animation studios and theme parks. It is cutting costs, so he says no. <sighs> Weinstein demands that the trilogy be cut down to one movie. Jackson and Walsh stand their ground. Weinstein fires back that he can have Quentin Tarantino film the movie. Fuck Harvey Weinstein. Finally pissed off enough, Jackson takes the film to New Line. New Line CEO actually likes the Lord of the Rings and knows what it is. There's some back and forth, but he finally agrees to make three Lord of the Rings movies based on the first three books. What about The Hobbit? Fuck The Hobbit. That's what about The Hobbit. <sighs> Skip forward to 1999. Filming on the trilogy starts on October 11th, 1999 and runs for 439 motherfucking days until December 22nd, 2000. Stuart Townsend was in this movie until they realized during the production he was too young for the project and replaced him with Viggo Mortensen. Matter of fact, let's get some of the people who could have been this movie out of the way. 150 people auditioned for the role of Frodo, including Jake Gyllenhaal. He did not get the role. Gandalf could have been Sean Connery before 
League of Extraordinary Gentlemen killed his passion for acting, but he didn't get the but Johnny Reese said he didn't get the plot of the books. You and lots of other people, Sir Sean. Sam Neill was approached to be Gandalf, but he was filming Jurassic Park 3, which I'm sure he definitely fucking regrets. Oh shit, it's John Reese Davies. Every movie ever made has a connection to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. David Bowie wanted to be Elrond, but Peter Jackson thought it would take people out of the film, probably because people want to see if his dick had gotten any bigger since Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> the production of these movies both helped and destroyed New Zealand's economy and ecology, respectively. See Lindsay Ellis' video about the production of The Hobbit if you want to know more about that. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring had a shared budget of 93 million, which is honestly a fucking steal for this kind of fantasy CGI epic, and through its various re-releases and reissues in theaters would go on to make eight would go on to make 897.6 million dollars at the box office. It has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 95% audience score. And dear God, now on with our feature presentation, because fuck me, that is a lot. So you said that that was abridged, right? Yeah. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to mention that, like, that um, surrounding this movie in terms of other budgets, two years prior, Star Wars Episode One had a budget of $115 million. Slightly more, but one can argue that like it didn't have nearly as much of a return as this one in terms of budget to quality to, to box office. Spider-Man, uh, two years late or one year later, budget of $139 million. This will come very... This will be very relevant in maybe like eight to nine weeks. Men in Black 2, budget of $140 million. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, and also, I, I do want to mention one thing. I actually uh, researched this recently. I, I'd have to get up to date because I don't have all the facts off the top of my head. There was another Hobbit movie that was technically made and technically shown in theaters for money in, I think, 1973. Uh, I don't remember the name of the people who made it off the top of my head, but it was basically made in about a month and to call it a movie would be generous. It is more of a slideshow. It has aspects that resemble the Hobbit, AKA the plot is sort of similar. There are characters with the same names, but it is very bizarre and kind of crackpot. And that the director of the film went up to people in the streets, asked them if they wanted to see the movie as it would only cost them one dime, which he would then hand them a dime so that they could hand back to them so that he, he could say, this person has paid me money to watch this movie. Hmm. I'll, try uh... more, I'll try to have more on that uh, when we get to the next episode, when we talk about the two towers, or maybe I'll save it for when we get to the Hobbit film. Oh my god, it, this It may be more is... fitting in that regard. These movies are... That was me trying to condense as much as I possibly could. Like, there, there's so much other stuff that happens just with the rights to make the movie. So, so uh, you mentioned that Kubrick... Like, the, when did he say it was too dense? Was this in, like, the 60s? Yeah, this was in the 60s. Motherfucker wanted to make, like, a comprehensive, like, three- to four-hour movie about Napoleon. 
Like, uh, <laughs> I guess he just wasn't interested in the source material, but, like, it would have been... I would have been very keen to see something like that. I mean, the, the thing that comes up over and over and over again, in the... Per, just in the... Just from a standpoint of people thinking about making the movies, is that the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are just too dense. Too much stuff happens, which is why it was thought to be more or less unfilmable, which is why it had so many, you know, animated versions of it, because they were like, there's just no way we can make this, especially... In the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's like the technology just isn't there for us to be able to actually make these movies. And like, also around this time, there were like a. Like, this is also the time period where like high fantasy movies would just go into theaters and fucking bomb. Like, I I joke about Willow because, you know, Willow is Willow, but like that movie did not do well at all. It is. You know, he's probably one of George Lucas's biggest failures in terms of stuff he was definitely involved in. Right. Like, f- fantasy movies were just out at this period. Every once in a while, you'd get, like, a Dungeon and Dragons, which is Dungeon and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that's what all you'd get. Or you'd get, like, fucking a kid in King Arthur's court or some some shit like that. Yeah, or you'd get something comedic like uh, Princess Bride. Yeah, which, you know, Princess which... Bride is probably, like, the foremost example, but I don't even know if Princess Bride did great at the box office. Like, it certainly wasn't breaking box office records. Right. Now, I feel like that one's more of a cult hit. Yeah, yeah. Al- along with something like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal. Yeah. It's just... It it was basically held to get this movie made, and Peter Jackson just so happened to know the right people at the right time and take it to a studio that really was trying to bolster itself and give itself kind of its own tentpole franchise. That's just defines New Line Cinema throughout their entire <laughs> existence. They were. It always seems like they're str- They're like the Australian film industry. It always seems like they're struggling to just like stay afloat, or like despite how recognizable they are. Like for instance, New um, Nightmare on Elm Street basically like made them. They they probably had a su- success with Mortal Kombat. They they were the studio that put out Blade. Um, very very diverse set of of like of of products under their belt, and like one could sort of like if you ask like different people on the street what they think of when they think of New Line Cinema in terms of films released, they'd probably give you a different answer. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at their highest-grossing films. Of course, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is there, but Rush Hour 2, Austin Powers and Goldmember, Wedding Crashers, Elf, uh, Jesus. Oh, well, there's a Sex in the City and We're the Millers. The first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, Dumb and Dumber, the mask like how was this studio always struggling <laughs> <laughs> like always nah, drugs i don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay so i guess now we can just talk about the movie okay, we we can talk about the fact that the opening of the movie is like 
in the regular version, I think is like 10 or 15 minutes long. And it's just people, it's just Galadriel talking. It, it, it really does give me like flashbacks of Dune, where you just have to have a character show up and explain some shit just so you can get into like the mode of the film. At the very least, it, it's a lot more, um, as opposed to so, something like Indiana Jones, which is just like introduce the character, um, introduce like who he is. In this case, like this is a movie series based around like a, a MacGuffin, like something that that everyone wants the the One Ring, and they and they do a decent enough job explaining it. They they lay the groundwork for for why this is such like a, a powerful thing, like what it's responsible for who the major players are. Although there are certain things that like it, it kind of leaves out like in, in no, like we don't sort of get the idea of whether Sauron was, was completely destroyed or, or whether again, like you, you read that like his spirit flees, his body was destroyed, but his spirit flees and the, and the movie was a bit cagey about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it would not this movie would not have worked as well if it didn't have that prologue to be like okay here's here are the rules of this universe here are the characters you need to know let's get you up to date it's it's like a promo package before a, a attitude era pay-per-view so you know kind of what the fuck is going on so you can get it so you can get into it. It, it this prologue needs to be there so we understand it um, I will be interested to know if the prologue stands up once we get to the Hobbit movies. Hmm. But I mean, we'll see. But I, I mean, like a, a prologue like this, it, it's kind of a delicate balancing act because if you do it wrong, you're just kind of setting up your movie for failure. Speaking of doom, like what's it? What <laughs> failure is? Uh, uh, again, I don't know how to define Dune. <laughs> Enough about Dune. what is that movie? <laughs> Anyways, it, it's it's a good balancing act. Like, what's another movie that kind of starts with a lot of exposition, and it just kind of sucks the air out of it? Hmm. Oh, that sucks the air out of it. Hmm. Mass Effect. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be a movie, but <laughs> damn it! <laughs> but yeah, the, it's all stuff that we need to ne we need to know. Uh, there are rings. Sauron is a bad guy. He makes a ring to control all other rings. Sauron is maybe defeated, and um, the and uh, the guy Isildur he steals the ring, drops it in the river because he's a dumbass. A hobbit finds it, becomes Gollum. Gollum loses ring. Bilbo finds ring, and that's where we begin our story. Yep. Except not really, because then we have another prologue in the form of Bilbo talking about hobbits and shit. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is like, speaking of like Tolkien being a, potentially being a racist, this is a movie where types of people are very broadly defined. And mm -hmm. one, and in order to further sort of that, that broad definition of them, you always have characters openly talking about like, other like dwarves talking about elves, elves talking about humans, like humans talking about hobbits in in ways that that like no one seems to bat an eyelash about. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it's been talked to death of is or isn't Tolkien a racist, and uh, I, I don't think we're equipped for that. Yeah. But I do like, like, he, he was very clear that hobbits are supposed to be, like, his take on British people. As in, as in the, as in they uh, just kind of uh, sit around and eat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I won't, I, I think it's, I think it's far more balanced. That's why I said maybe was a, ra- is a bit of a racist. It's probably not that he's racist. It's probably just that he has, you know, the same prejudices that anyone that was born in the 1800s would have. I mean, 1800, you know, 1892, it's barely the 1800s, but still, like, I don't, I don't know about that, but it is interesting, kind of, that this movie has a lot of racial politics, and also that the movie doesn't have enough time to get into said politics. Right. (sighs) Okay, so, ay, 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 we're... Where do we begin? Let's begin with Frodo, who, when I was watching this, after I had watched this movie, I called Frodo a jabroni. So. I'm interested to hear you back that up, just with this movie in particular, because I know what happens in later movies. But I want to hear what your take is just on him from this movie. The reason I feel like he's a jabroni is because I feel like he doesn't really do anything. Like, he's... Yeah, I mean... We can... Again, the central central thing in this movie is MacGuffin. It... Well, I I mean, that's kind of the thing that people point out. Frodo is not important to the story, and that's kind of why he is important. Like, uh, because he... Because with the ring... He has to be the one to take it because the ring is basically temptation itself. Like anyone who wants yes. it, it, that's it, it's drawn to them and it kind of drives them mad. Like the scene where he tries to give it to Gandalf and Gandalf just freaks out. It's like, no, no, because like because he knows what's going to happen if I have that ring. He, like even like even just for a couple minutes. I'm going to go nuts and go power crazy and take over the world. Whereas the worst that can happen with Frodo is and we'll see it in the next movie. Yeah. Or he, he basically becomes like a, a little, little goblin creature, like, like Smeagol. Yeah. He turns into, he turns into Andy circus. Yeah. yeah. I think... a- Andy three ring circus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> But but anyway, uh, I mean, at, at the very least, one can his characterization is all about like his sense of responsibility, whether he's able to commit to this, like him sort of realizing by the end of the movie that like he knows that like the fellowship may not be the right idea. Like if he doesn't want conflict potentially killing people close to him, then he needs to go go off and do this on his on its own. And the way the mo- the movie sets up hobbits makes this kind of kind of significant, kind of really significant in terms of like the way they're viewed by everyone else and 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 the the utter responsibility of of potentially like defeating uh, like a, a a being of supreme evil once and for all. Um, the way I absorbed this movie, at least the way I thought of Elijah Wood, 
related to this movie was just him with that sort of like worrying, fearful face that they parodied on like the the MTV Movie Awards or whatever. And that's certainly, I can I can say that that certainly persists throughout the movie. But at the very least, like by the end, he's comforted by by being able to go on this ad- adventure with like his closest friend, someone who will stick stick his nose out for him. And you finally see him sort of crack a smile and like this this may be insurmountable, but it's doable at least. I I don't know. I this is this is not gonna be a good comparison and feel free to give me all the shit you want about this, but I get big Bella Swan energy off Frodo. It would No What I mean and I don't mean that he's like a Mary Sue or that, or that he's like a stand-in for the author or anything like that. I just mean that if you read those books and watch those movies, Bella is pretty incidental to the plot. Like she doesn't she doesn't really do much that moves the plot forward. She is a plot device in and of herself and she is surrounded by characters that are far more interesting. That's what I mean with Frodo. I, I mean, do not agree with that at all because first saying Frodo is passive, that's not correct because when they're at the elf city and they're all arguing about what to do with the ring, nobody basically tells them that he's the one who has to take the ring. He's the one who stands up and says, I will take the ring to Mordor. Yeah. I mean, and then later in the movie, it's his decision to disband the fellowship because because he knows that they're just going to be fighting over the ring eventually. Yeah, like it's not like a one-to-one thing, but it's just like there's so many parts of this movie where it's just like Frodo getting his shit kicked in, or not getting his shit kicked in, but like Frodo yes takes this takes a fucking spear to the chest, and they they when they're in the tomb, he takes another spear to the chest, and he only survives because he has the mithril, and you know. They, they're just. He, he's he's definitely. I mean, like I would agree that he's a jabroni, but but that's certainly by de, by design. He he is sort of the one to make the the sort of um impactful but seemingly insignificant decisions, like like Backlash just said. Whereas you you have like you have people like Aragorn who represents like, he's more or less like Edgar in, in final fantasy six. Like he, he represents this entire kingdom that he's reluctant to sort of, uh, go against you. You have Boromir who, who's a foil to the other characters, but also kind of the representative human since like, unlike Aragorn, he's, he's, he's among his people and he wants to represent him. I also say that, like in the scheme of mythology, even though I'm kind of bouncing from one character to another, Aragorn is kind of like a—he's like an Achilles kind of analog, where like he he returns at the right time, and uh, Boromir is like his Patroclus, like his his death kind of energizes him. But related to Frodo, like he's he makes the he makes the decisions that like that aren't as sort of assertive or 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 sort of um or won't sort of go down in history or or he doesn't like have the most power but like what he does is impactful in its own way but yes he's a jabroni and he and he spends a lot of the movie selling yeah it's just like and i'm not saying and when i say he's a jabroni i don't mean to like 
I don't mean that he... I don't mean that Elijah Wood isn't doing good with the material. I don't even mm-hmm. mean that he, it's like a badly written character. It's just that maybe, maybe my problem is that I'm thinking of him more. And after all the shit that I talked about Star Wars fans, I'm probably thinking of him more in a Luke Skywalker kind of like the, the, the chosen one kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I think he he is the chosen one but he is the chosen one because there's nothing special about him kind of he there he's the chosen one because he is the one who uh, who will be the least tempted by the power that has been handed to him basically yeah Exactly. Like, he won't sort of be the one to, like, take the last shot to destroy, like, the big super weapon. He won't be the one, like, as a representative of the Rebellion. Other characters represent their their sort of people. They represent where they've come from. And they're sort of all uh, more important bits of machinery in the war between, like, Sauron's forces and, and, and the rest of Middle Earth. But but yeah, it's 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 an interesting way of going about the character, and like it, it's understandable how it could how it could sort of leave people in the dust. Yeah, I mean, I, I this is a I'm sure that as the movie goes on, I'll probably feel less and less like that as we watch the the next movies because this is very this movie is very much the first act of a three part story. Yeah, like. There's, there. They don't even pretend that there's not going to be a second movie. The way the movie ends is basically like, "We'll see you next year." There's, there's gonna be a second one of these, uh, and not even like in a cliffhanger fashion, just in the fashion that like, clearly the story isn't quite over. Um. <sighs> okay, so. Now that I got that out of my system, um, if anyone else has something they want to talk about, feel free, because I'm, this, like, this is going to be a lot more loosely structured than, than other podcasts, just because, and I'm sure not, we'll jump in when we have something to add. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think the... And I would be interested to see if if we get to the two towers and Return of the King, if we're feeling like the same way where we just can't like summarize it in the same in the way we normally would. <sighs> but um, oh wait a minute, hang on. I hear I hear the fanboy screaming. What about Tom Bombadil? What about Tom Bombadil? I don't want. I don't. <laughs> Is it Tom? Yeah, we're not. We're not go. We're not going there. Just. Isn't Tom Bombadil like just? He's like, a character that exists only to break the pace and slow the, to slow the pace down. He seems to and me and not like, in a good way. He seems to me like bad DLC, like like just DLC that has no point. It tells no. a story that doesn't mean anything to anyone. I'm, I'm guessing to the fans, like he's the t- he's the Lord of the Rings is like modern gaming with like microtransactions for costumes and, and fighting games and, and he's he represents the arrow and costumes and fighting games were just unlockable 
out of the package. That's Tom Bombadil. Yeah, but I I I did feel like, what is this character doing here? Because she doesn't have literally anything else to do with the plot of this movie. And I understand that she has stuff to do with the other movies, but it seemed a weird place to just, like, drop in a character that is going to be gone, like, I don't know. She's she's there to, to sort of introduce another um, archetype that Aragorn serves. The the human who who sort of, like... Uh, forms a union with with someone from a from another race and this and this disrupts but arwen's an elf i I actually want to say because i know we're going to get comments about this uh we're aware that we're calling out these tropes uh on a movie based on a book that invented a lot of these tropes (laughs) yeah like it's let's let's not lie about how influential this movie is you can watch 30 minutes of this movie and be like Oh, so this is where literally everything in high fantasy comes from. Yeah, it even it even influenced Stephen King. God bless him. <laughs> like, let's not make any mistakes about that. But I, it might sound like I'm trying to talk shit about this movie. I'm really not. It's I understand that this movie is really well made, really well crafted, especially given just the denseness of the material. Like, this movie is a fucking miracle. And that it touched so many people is a miracle. And that it makes as much sense as it does. Because I I understand the plot. I can follow the story. There's aspects of it that kind of throw me through a loop. But I can, I can get there somehow. But I don't want people thinking that this... I'm, I think this is a bad movie. Because I don't. I think it might just not be a movie for me, and that is fine because there's loads of other shit that I'm into. I think a lot of... To go on a tangent, not that we haven't been going on tangents already, but like a lot of... We talked about this with The Last Jedi, that people just aren't okay with not liking something. Or, or just being like, hey, you know what, man? That wasn't for me, but good on you for liking it. Instead, everyone has to have an opinion that boils down to, you are the worst ever for not liking the thing I like, and you are the worst ever for... You know, it, that discourse is just horrible and terrible and doesn't help literally at all. And... Uh, that's just kind of... I don't know, I'm but the Casey.exe stopped working again. Someone else someone else talk. Um <laughs> uh, oh boy, let's see. Uh <laughs> th- th- this whole thing, the structure's gone. That where it's a mess. It's a jumbled mess. I don't know where we're talking. I don't know where we are. I really don't care. Um because <laughs> I, I like again, I I I this is just for selfish reasons, like I don't want this to be like a two-hour, three-hour podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't think we've we've necessarily uh, earned that for for these movies. Um, what did you think of the the action in this movie, sparing as it was? And I understand that. I think the next movie is gonna is gonna make up for that with like long war scenes and such. Um, I thought there was a lot of. Uh, there was a lot more shaky cam and close-ups than I thought there was going to be. 
Right. Like when, you, when you think fantasy epic, you think maybe not of the most choreographed, you know, action ever, but it seemed to me like a lot of the action was just kind of a means to an end, which is weird because I think we talked about how Tolkien's how Tolkien's son says that the movies are all, all action with no heart. And I would say this these this movie is full of fucking heart. Yeah. And the the action in and of itself is pretty meh. Yeah, like I I found the entire uh intro of the movie during Bilbo's birthday just entirely charming. Yeah. Whereas the action... but, uh, as as far as action, I I laughed my ass off through the entire fight between Gandalf and Saruman. Because <laughs> yeah. that fight is silly. Everything yeah, yeah, is stupid. Where, where, where Gandalf just gets thrown around and like levitated up and just smacked against it. Yeah, that I I will I will let you know though that that one best fight at the the two thousand two MTV Movie Awards. Uh... Was it ironic that they selected that one? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I can't honestly figure. Out. I'm I'm pretty sure that was the one that Jack Black hosted. Uh, I, I don't remember anything about MTV Movie Awards. How do you know this? Because I because I watched MTV a pretty decent amount as a kid, and and it's 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 made my brain entirely that of a goldfish. But I, <laughs> but I with the caveat that I remember MTV. Um, but but yeah. Um, the the sketch for oh Lord no Lord. it didn't win that yeah it didn't win Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker versus the Hong Kong Gang for Rush Hour two won. it didn't no it didn't okay so then yeah I as I said about my memory um, <laughs> that was a good fight though in Rush Hour two another new line picture um, I do remember the sketch though was that during the the Fellowship uh, formation like Jack Black was uh, he reveals that he got a pr- he got uh, Prince Albert with the ring. <laughs> I don't want to think about that. <laughs> oh, 2002. Yeah. Uh, holy shit! A Knight's Tale came out at the same time. Ah. But anyways. So so as far as far as the the uh, it may help that like the antagonists in the movie. Um, I don't necessarily think the the Orakai are 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 very interesting. Like they they have the the sort of one leader of them who doesn't say a thing, um, like ordered by Saruman, and like the, those fight scenes were okay, but like you said, a lot of shaky cam. Um, there there was that one scene, like I I also feel like Legolas has like very little stake as a character in this, but there was that one scene where he climbs atop like a mook and and then just like shoots him right in the head with it with his arrow at yeah, like that the was closest cool. range possible. Mm. Um, like, I think the, the most choreographed scene is the scene with the, um, uh, the, the big, I forget what they call it. The orc that's bigger than all the other, the, the, the big one, the fucking big one. With the face paint? Oh, the, or no, no, no. Yeah. El, El, El Gigante. Yeah. El Gigante. <laughs> giant Gonzalez, when guy, when Giant Gonzalez shows up. The cave uh, troll. That's it. They just call it a cave troll. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, can I just say <laughs> one of my favorite scenes before that is when they're looking through the mines and Pippin knocks the body down the well and it's just falling for what feels like minutes and the entire time Gandalf is just staring at him like, are you fucking serious right now? 
extended edition, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, that scene went on. That scene went on for a bit in the in the regular. Uh, as yeah. well. <laughs> I'm sure. I do. We know what they what they sort of elaborated upon. Like, did they add things to the beat? Because I feel like it, it's. Just I, like... I looked up a few things. They they added a lot of name drops to to the Hobbit. Uh, they added in all the scenes with Gollum. Uh, they added in uh, a bunch of stuff with Galadriel, and uh, I, I guess they extended a lot of scenes. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Sounds like they just smoothed a lot of things out, like, beyond the Gollum stuff, because I never really... In fact, I actually had a note, because I feel like this is kind of an an issue that they overstate. You were talking about how Frodo gets stabbed with the spear earlier, and that's kind of to set up that, oh, the Mithril Vest, it stops anything. But then there's a scene before that, and I'm guessing this was only in the extended scene, where Gimli is, uh, where Gandalf mentions the Mithril Vest, and he and he specifically says it was a gift to Bilbo from Thorin Oakenshield. And Gimli says, like, oh, that's a kingly gift there. And then later, they, they do the the bit with the Mithril Vest later, and it's like, and, and it's like they had, and it feels like they didn't mention it earlier. So I'm like, that seems like a bit of an error. Yeah, right. it's important to note that these are ex- that the extended editions are extended editions and not director's cuts. Like, yeah, I feel like there's a very there is a difference between a movie that is extended and a movie that is a director's cut. Like, I don't think you could add, you know, another two hours worth of content into Justice League in College <laughs> Justice League the extended edition. And it would be a, you know, it would be a better movie for it. I, I it, think the distinction is that, like, the extended edition fills out certain things that, that, and it doesn't do anything to the integrity of the plot or, like, what the intent of the plot is. Whereas a director's cut, like, means to sort of change certain notions of it. Like, the the most famous one being, uh, the famous early example being, like, Ridley Scott's director's cut that very stupidly insists that Deckard is a replicant. Oh god. We'll get Should to that eventually, but yeah, we'll get we'll we'll, we'll get to Blade Runner. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the Balrog is is very very well built up, very well revealed, goes down without really much of a struggle. Yeah, he, yeah, I mean, th- to be fair, that is one of the most iconic scenes in film. Yes. They accomplished something. Clearly they accomplished something. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it's well. You no, know, that's another thing that they changed from the books. Uh, if only because someone showed me the scene in the Ralph Bakshi version, which is more accurate to the books. It's that when, uh, when Gandalf is facing it on the bridge, when he breaks the bridge, he's supposed to fall with it. But then they do they do that weird thing where he's like he breaks the bridge, but he's still standing on it and can walk away. And he just gets grabbed. He gets, and then he's hanging there for a little bit so he can say his one line, and they don't think, like, help him! Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of standing there and in, in reactions to things, uh, especially when someone gets struck. Um, which is, is funny how, how much they spare that, that kind of stuff in Star Wars. But, but, but anyway, Balrog is a good design. Um, let me see. I would almost compare it to like you look at the cave tro- troll as more of like a traditional Dark Souls boss, where it, where it like takes a little bit of maneuvering, learning patterns, and whereas uh, the Balrog is like the Dragon King and Demon Souls, where where it's just there's like a it's more of a puzzle kind of cinematic thing. Yeah, 
I think again, I I think that scene there are parts of this movie where things are a little bit too hokey for my liking. Like the scene like I love the scene of the the, the you will not pass you shall not pass. Like that that scene is badass. But then like the the thing where like the whip is falling and then it all of a sudden the whip is like defeating gravity to go up and catch Gandalf and everyone's just standing around reacting to the fact that he's about to fall and then he says one line and falls and everyone re- reacts to that it, it's a oh, little fly, bit you fools. say one more time fly you fools yeah exactly who parodied that like who referenced that because I, I completely <laughs> I uh, it's probably been parodied a lot I mean yeah. there's so many par- how many scenes in this fucking movie are just memes now we we have the boromir one does not simply walk into mordor we have the 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 bilbo monster face we have uh yeah um, you shall not pass yep um you have the the arwen stuff which is basically just lifted wholesale and put in suburban nights oh well, let's not talk about that <laughs> yeah we are not doing a Doug Walker franchise. Oh man! If we ever get a Patreon, I am totally no! making one of the, the no! tears. No, Kick no, no! I will quit. I will quit. <laughs> we are gonna watch Kickassia Suburban Nights into Bully Flea. No, and <laughs> don't, in don't, the wall. Don't turn, don't turn backlash into Christian Bale. <laughs> you motherfuckers! You will not do this to me. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm. <laughs> uh, but... Again, that cave troll became El, El, El Gigante in the uh, Resident <laughs> Evil Four. <laughs> that the fucking the Galadriel's creepy transformation became Mister Burns as an alien from The Sims. Oh wait, no, that came first. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I mean, I just... Actually, can I ask this? Is this the movie that started the trope of Sean Bean dying and everything he's in? That's what I wanted to know. No, no, no. He died in GoldenEye. He was the villain in GoldenEye. Yeah, he was the villain in GoldenEye. Right. I, I'm yeah, but that's Google. kind of expected if you're the villain in GoldenEye. If you're the yeah. villain in a James Bond film, you kind of have to die. I'm Googling it. Unless you're Blofeld. But but in any case, I, I don't think it is. Although I think this probably like brought him into... He didn't die in Silent Hill. Okay, so I have I have the list. Uh, he die he dies in Carvaggio in 1986. So that's before that. War Requiem in 1989. He dies. Uh, there's and that's a BBC. That's not a movie. Um, dies in 1991 and tell me that you love me. He dies in 1985 in Goldeneye. Uh, he dies in don't say a word in 2001 uh he dies in henry the eighth in 2003 uh he dies in the island in 2005 jesus christ so anyway um (laughs) we can we can move on to this like discuss boromir which like as a foil character and and as sometimes an antagonist sometimes not is is pretty intriguing 
Like he's someone who who represents like a, a sort of fallen the fallen glory of of like an entire entire people. He he sort of is racked with like generational guilt of of Isildur, which is funny because he's not the descendant, but like he he's feels like a great responsibility to because of like how how like man has kind of fallen in the eyes of of the other races, even though he's also someone who may follow in the footsteps of Sauron as as like we can use the ring, we could use its power to to counteract uh, Sauron. Yeah, I mean, he, very full full characterization. Yeah, I think he's a very interesting. Uh, he's not an antagonist, but he is someone that presents a different side of things. Yeah, presents a different way to go about doing things. He's very much. Uh, he is very much tempted by the dark side of the force, but he's tempted in that most dangerous of ways in which he thinks that that isn't the dark side he is just he's just trying to do what's right for his people Mm -hmm. he's trying to do whatever it would take to return his people to their former glory is what he's willing to do so why not use the ring to do that like it's almost like a how bad can it really be whereas you know Galadriel and Gandalf are like, if I put that ring on, shit will be fucked. Like, there is no question about it. Shit will go bad. Uh, yeah. And, Boromir and it, is a lot more like, will shit really go bad? I mean, right. surely I can, ha- you know, surely I can handle it. I just want to restore my people. I'm yeah, not which is, which is the evil. central fallacy, which is like the central fallacy of of that thing as a device and something that drives story. Um, and Gandalf and Galadriel like kind of look at it in a different way, or their awareness of it presents itself in a different way, whereas Gandalf... I was going to say Ganondorf. Whereas... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> whereas Gandalf, like, is... It's to the point of fear. It's almost like w- with aggression with, with Galadriel, where she, she has, like, the precise scenario of, of what her having that power will will sort of will bring which is itself a good scene like with with her speech yeah it, it seems to me that the the person who is the person who's most unaware of like what saruman having the ring would mean is well, what sauron having the ring would mean is saruman cuz gandalf basically says to him like the there's only like Sauron wants the ring. You're not going to be able to share the power of the ring with him. Like, Sauron seems like the only person who doesn't quite understand how this shit is going to go. He very clearly thinks he's going to be able to enact some sort of control and that Sauron won't just, you know, murder him. Which... I think a part of uh, I think a part of him knows but he's in denial. Which is itself like again, like a lot of a lot a lot of cognitive dissonance about like seeking power and like what one can do with it, and what what one ultimately like will do with it, even though they think that um, they they think that they could sort of like compromise. That's not the point. Like this. Yeah, I mean he he's basically like there's no way that we're gonna be able to beat Sauron, so we should all join him because we're all gonna be fucked if he gets the. If and when he gets the ring, so just join him. 
and but he clearly is like, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll join and I'm going to be the boss. And also, he's just is... going to be an upper level executive, duh. This has also been said, like, uh, very recently I read a tweet like this, and this is always a, a, a feeling that I had. Tolkien, how fucking like obvious and and stupid is it that your your main big bad is named Sauron and your and his underling is named Saruman? Fuck that. <laughs> that, that. That's what a what a lack of inspiration. Yeah, how dare he? Uh, um, we could talk. Take <laughs> <laughs> that guy who's been dead for fifty years. I think. Uh, died in 1972. Yeah. Um, Just about. So yeah, Hugo Weaving is really does does not draw too much attention to himself as he does in, in other roles. Yeah. I said, Mr. Anderson, when he came on screen and my wife looked at me like, what the fuck are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> uh... But yeah, he... I... He doesn't draw much attention to himself, but that he also doesn't make himself. He's just exposition guy. He's like one of five exposition guys in this movie. Yeah, he just shows up to explain shit to the audience. He's he's like, oh, I told Isildur to destroy the ring, and he didn't. Now shit's fucked. Yeah, it kind of makes me think like, not why is he here? Because I guess he has to be there because he's. Arwen's dad or whatever, but like, eh, I I I could have taken him or leave or left him. I didn't think he was that impactful in the story. Maybe as we go forward, he'll do more. But he was just kind of one of the characters who's just there. Mm. Um, we could talk about the other hobbits, uh, Sam and Mary and Pippin, um. Fucking Marion Pippin, aka J and J Security. <laughs> That's a good definition. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I mean, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think I was mostly annoyed by Marion Pippin just because they seem to exist just to fuck shit up. But yeah. I I think that was. That's like, I already of... mentioned knocking the body down the well. Yeah. and But they also, they kind of have their usefulness, too. And they are pretty brave. And, you know, as compared to Frodo, who just, like, kind of runs and hides when they're getting attacked in the mines. Like, Merry and Pippin are like, fuck yeah, we're gonna fight. And they, like, they actually scrap and try and fight off the Nazgul, which... Well, not the... It's not the Nazgul in that scene. It's the fucking Urukai in that scene, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. There's so many fucking racists. Yeah, it, it, that's that's one of the big problems with this movie. There's so many characters. There's so many different kinds of villains. Yeah, I will say... I, I prefer the Nazgul overall. Like, they... I mean, just because you recognize them by their, their, their garb, you recognize them by the, the sort of ridges of their their sort of greaves and their and their feet it's just just very good like one thing this movie does well is close-ups yeah of character reactions or certain signifiers for for characters the ring in, in the palm of someone's hand 
just in general, like that that kind of stuff, I I find enjoyable. Yeah. For for establishing things. Yeah. But, and but, furthering things. Yeah, but Mary and Pippin very much seem like comic relief, which is weird because Gimli is comic relief. So you have like two different sorts of comic relief kind of vying for who's going to be the most comic relief of them. It's it's uh, not to not to disparage a book that was written in the 1930s, but it seems like an editor would be like, "Do you need all three of these characters or can the or can any of these characters be combined because they're both kind of playing the same roles ish?" Yeah. One thing, another personal experience going back to like trying to read the book is that reading the beginning of The Hobbit is like reading the beginning of the Bible where you expect it to all be like exposition and plot, but instead you just read all these fucking verses about which person beget which person. <laughs> <laughs> and like you, you see like everyone that Bilbo and Gandalf have invited to their house and it's all just a bunch of rhyming names. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Well, by Tolkien's own own admission, The Hobbit was written to be a story for his children. So it's a kid's book. Yeah, And and then he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy because his kids had gotten older and they needed a more serious book. Yeah, so I I think that it seems to me that like the so-and-so begot so-and-so who was related to so-and-so who's, you know, third cousins twice removed with so-and-so. Like that seems... That seems like a. Uh, Did Tolkien uh, ever write anything dark and and or edgy? Because <laughs> uh, I'd be sim- interested the, to read that. The Cimmerillion, which is yeah. like the the compendium to the the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies, which is literally just that. Which is that, it's all it is is just world building for Lord of the Rings and and stuff like that. Yeah, we could also sort of like. Uh, discuss the fact that like Peter Jackson is one of those directors I, who who started out uh, doing exploitation movies mm-hmm. um, and horror movies, and then they're like, yeah, let's just give you the budget to do this gigantic epic. So, <laughs> like, run sort of parallel to someone like Sam Raimi, who started out with like the the um, Evil Dead series, and then eventually went on to define like. In a certain, not obviously not the first, but define like how superhero movies would be, would be viewed until the MCU with Spider Man. Yeah, but yeah, here's what I wonder about that because Sam Raimi, in between making the Evil Dead movies and Army of Darkness, and then doing the Spider Man movies, he made Dark Man, which I'd call a good middle ground between his earlier movies and Spider Man. I need to see that. I don't think Peter. I don't think Peter Jackson has a movie like that. He did Heavenly Creatures. Which is a bit more of a drama thing with like one of Kate Winslet's early roles. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, everything that I've been able to read, it's basically because like, it, especially like you have to put yourself back in the ideas of Hollywood, like back in the '90s. Like, why did Kevin Smith have a, such a prolific film career? It's because like he made movies cheap, and his movies always made more than their budget. Like they made more than their budget. Slightly more. No, slightly yeah. more than Smith their budget. Smith was basically Kevin Smith is basically the Jason Blum of the nineties. Yeah, they made slightly more than their budget at the box office, and then they did like gangbusters on DVD and shit like that. Yep. I feel like Peter Jackson is kind of the same way, where it's like 
all right, you know, he makes, you know, he makes his weird movies. They make, you know, he never loses his money and sure, let's give him this thing. Mostly it's just because he knows the right people at this point. Like I said, he has a relationship with Harvey Weinstein who is a piece of shit and that is what kind of gets him in the door to start developing the movie. And later on, he knows the CEO of New Line, and New Line is like, hey, we need, like, an eighth franchise to be our tentpole, because we're struggling here. So, he he very much kind of stumbled into, you know, he kind of stumbled into making this movie. And maybe it was just at, at that point... Uh, Maybe at that point, the technology had reached a level where people were like, oh, yeah, give him a, like, how, it might have just reached a point in Hollywood where it was like, okay, how bad can it be? Maybe that's why he finally got it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's bizarre that he didn't really have a big franchise under his belt, and then they're like, sure, take $96 million and spend over a year filming these three movies that basically everyone says are impossible to make. Yeah, it's a it's a good achievement for him in that case. Yeah, I mean, I think it, there were moments where I'm like, uh, again, there there are there's stuff that I feel like comes across as hokey, but I don't know if that's just in the spirit of the book or if that's I've... just I'll go so far as to say that's probably in the spirit of the book and, like, the specific story told. Because otherwise, like, from a visual standpoint, like, with the exception of the action movies that we discussed, I think that this movie is kind of breathtaking. Like, whether that's a, a, a credit to, to, like, New Zealand or, or, or Peter Jackson's, like, sense of it, like, how he decided to use this, I think that they got the most out of what they what they had. Yeah. Um... Uh... You talk about Sam and Frodo's friendship, which uh, people kind of kind of derisively call it a bromance, or like I think they suggest that like Frodo and Sam should date, and I just look at it uh, as like I can't help but think back to the end of, to that scene in Clerks Two, yes. where uh, where Randall is going off on that one Lord of the Rings fan so hard to the point that he pukes. That's. Uh, that's like not even yeah. That's not the worst thing in Clerks, but but uh, that was actually. <laughs> oh, you mean that's not worse than the bestiality? Interspecies erotica, Bucko. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that actually grew out of uh, Kevin Smith speaking of him again, like one of his his evening with kind of things where he explained like that's how he views the series, and I think that like what you were saying about Frodo is could kind of be like, compared with that. That w from Frodo's standpoint, like um it is a movie about walking to picturing into a volcano. So like if you, if not for like the war and everything else, I think that people would be a lot less enthused about this. If not for like the, the, the sort of world building and, and the way they have other characters that represent like different aspects of that. But, um, here's another sort of like signaling question. Do you both think that a movie like this could be made at just the first part of this mythology could be made in two hours? Do you think it or it could, be, could run two hours? I mean, I made a joke that I felt like I could cut out like fifteen minutes. Of, here, I probably could find enough stuff in which 
I thought could be cut out in the movie would still make sense, but mm-hmm. would them would it kind of mean the same if you're trying to if you're trying to to keep the spirit of the books if you cut out certain stuff does it then kind of ruin that for fans of the movie like cutting out Tom Bombadil who for all intents and purposes like even like I think most Lord of the Rings fans would say that like Tom Bombadil, his entire plot is basically surplus to requirements. It doesn't, it doesn't advance the story. It's just some shit that happens before you know the characters actually go on and start their adventure. Uh, it's, uh, I think I, I could probably find enough stuff to make this into a two-hour movie. But in a weird way, I don't think the movie would be as good or as compelling. Because I never got the urge to, like, stop. I I watched it over a few nights, but that's because I had to do, like, homework and shit like that. But I never, like, got the edge, the urge to be like, fuck me, I can't watch this movie anymore, I need to take a break. It, so, in that aspect, it's compelling. And so, I... Maybe, maybe I could make a two-hour version of this movie, but I don't think it would be as good or as interesting. No, probably not. I think, like, even just going off the theatrical cut, let's not uh, pretend the extended cut was was necessary. Uh, Just off the theatrical cut, I'd say, like. Because the move, because the books are dense, and to include everything that you need to keep the story going, that so that you have everything you need going into the next two movies, cutting anything is it's going to be detrimental. I see. Like my own experiment with this is just like not so much cut out every single bit of exposition, but even the the. There are points of exposition where, like, um, for instance, the way they build up the, the Balrog is by calling him Shadow and Flame. They don't explain every mechanic of him. Like, they don't sort of, like, for instance, you could potentially cut out, like, the opening uh, narration. Try to, to to be as economic as you can with exposition and leave certain things to ambiguity. They have so many reaction shots to, for instance, the the power of the ring. You see what the effect of the ring is, like the the sort of uh, Frodo becoming surveilled by the eye of Sauron. What if you don't explain what that is, and instead he puts on the ring, and and then you hear these these whispers. You 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 sort of see these figures, and then you see this like giant burning eye and like that's the only effect that you get if this could be like two hours and 15 minutes with that in mind just focus on the reactions of characters focus on the actions of characters then it may be worth a shot yeah i get what you're i get where you're coming from because i do get uh, there is a lot of uh there's a lot of tell don't show in this movie to mm-hmm. a degree uh there's lots of uh, I think you know, it's both, I, honestly. Yeah, I mean, the the entire... I think the reason why Elrond doesn't make an impression on me is because his, in, 
his entire reason for existing is just uh, is just exposition. It's just background. His entire conversation with Gandalf is just background information so we can have mm-hmm. a flashback to what happened before. You could you could have put that flashback sequence in the beginning. You could have put that flashback sequence in the prologue and excised, you know, the need for Elrond to have to have that conversation. And you probably would have saved at least five minutes right there. Because it's not a very... Because the flashback isn't very long, but it takes a while for them to just sort of get to it. It, 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 A two-hour version of this movie can't exist. And as a matter of fact, I wonder... I kind of wonder if, like, TV versions of the movie, like, with commercials and stuff, cut out certain scenes to get down to, like, two and a half hours or something like that. I I would I will say that like overall like I was more delighted by my by my uh viewing of this even though like I don't think that I'm as enraptured as I could have been if like I got this impression after seeing this movie at like maybe 14 but the the notion of a TV version with commercials sounds like fucking torture. Yeah. <laughs> like I I mean, they do like USA Network shows this move shows these movies like once every weekend or something like that. Like, if I'm ever in a hotel and you turn to USA, usually like either Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or something like that is going to be on. Right. Uh. Uh. I'm, I mean, just yeah. I I think I think we could probably wrap. <laughs> Yeah, like this 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 episode has been a mess, but I think we've kind of gone over everything we need to talk about. It's been stream of consciousness, that's for sure. Yeah, because it, it's it's so hard, right? Like I was trying, I was. Uh, so we're just, I'm just gonna keep on talking. <laughs> I was like, maybe we could break it down. Hour one, hour two, hour three, but like so much happens in those. Like, each act that we would normally do has three acts in and of itself. Um, it's just, it's a really, this movie in particular, and again, I would, I wonder if The Two Towers and Return of the King are going to be the same way, but this movie packs a lot of shit in that we would, that like, you have to explain. There's no condensing the plot summary to like, five minutes or something like that there's there's so much shit that you have to explain in this movie um but uh, that that being said i don't hate this movie and i feel like i feel like i i almost feel like i'm gonna have to watch it again kind of like not when i'm looking at it for a podcast and just sort of like watch it for what it is rather than watch it for what I expected because this movie gets compared to Star Wars the original Star Wars trilogy so much I was kind of going into this movie and that mindset of like okay well this movie is going to be the A New Hope and then Two Towers is going to be the Empire and then Return of the King is going to be the Return of the Jedi and I think I just have to completely and utterly 
remove that thought from my mind because that is not what these movies are. They're completely no. different. No, no, they're only similar to Star Wars in the fact that they are grand epics that set the benchmark for a lot of movies that will be the inspiration for movies for you to come and have disappointing prequels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and essentially, just for also from the standpoint of production, uh, George George Lucas, what, what was going on to to build Star Wars, and and for what it's worth, Lord of the Rings is probably in some kind of uh, uh, influence on the mythology. I, I can't verify this. I know that Dune was one of them. But, I mean, uh, Lucas, Lucas, Lucas wanted to get the rights to to Lord of the Rings, so clearly it was something that he had in yeah. his mind. But it's it's kind of just to co- compare like seventy seven Star Wars with with uh, with this is it's it's too wide a gap. Like there's yeah. no, there's no like awkward phase in this movie. Everything is pretty clearly and and effectively realized for for better or worse to to whomever's watching. <sighs> Backlash, you have any final thoughts? Nope. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I think I can appreciate these movies for what they are. Uh, they are beautifully shot, well done movies that tell a tale that I'm desperately trying to like. And on some levels I do, but it's not going to become one of my favorite movies. Yeah, that's where I am. Oh, well, well, there's five more of these. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I think... I have a feeling that once we watch The Hobbit, we're going to be like, okay, we could probably go back to doing shit like the, the normal way we do it, just based on, like, the... the and I probably could have done, written an act summary for one of these, one of the acts in this. Yeah, it's like the one that has the least amount of shit in it, which is probably the end. <laughs> Who I didn't want to write the first act of this movie. So much shit happens. <sighs> so, I think, yeah, I think we can leave it at that. I think Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring really good movie um really well realized probably not the movie for me but i get the sense that i'm going to get more into this movie as we move forward with our next episode which is going to be lord of the rings the two towers um just i again i'm pretty sure i've never seen the two towers do you guys have like any kind of initial thoughts before you go back and rewatch for the podcast? No, no. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know I've seen the flick before. My friend tried to sell me on it so much. Um, I understand it's the one that's more um, action oriented. Hmm, interesting. <sighs> Alrighty then. So, with with all that mess out of the way, <laughs> we will see you next time wait no when i i usually have this my brain is all messed up usually i have a sign off or this i'm kc i'm your fox from backlash i'm no chris alive uh sequelizes method on a monotone uh casey did you do the plugs yeah i did them at the beginning oh okay <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you next time on the next episode of sequelize it